0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, we've had a problem
2: here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem.
1: Welcome to Space Junk. My name is Annie Hanmer and I research space law and international space cooperation at the Sydney University School of History and Philosophy of Science. Part two of my conversation with visiting NASA Sagan Fellow and exoplanet studying astrophysicist, Dr. Ben Pope is a lot like a Jane Austen novel. We unpack our prejudice against the humanity star and Musk's space Tesla. We spend a lot of time talking about money and the elite and ultimately find common ground in our mutual embarrassment about Australia's obsession with STEM. We hope you enjoy this wild ride through politics, philosophy, sociology and stolen biggies. Um, all right, so New Zealand has a space agency and earlier this year they launched a humanity star. The humanity star being a essentially a meter diameter disco ball mm. um, which was deavering its way through space um mm. the the idea was that you would look up and you would see this star and you would be reminded of mm. the shared humanity of everyone on earth which mm. is a lovely idea uh except that you i mean it it's one star out of yeah billions of stars that you could see and added to that um it got in the way of some astro
0: Oh well, it didn't read really. did it. Well, so did it? I, I was quoted in I forget which newspaper for my little I Twitter rant you. about how I hated it.
1: I quoted you your Twitter rant in a talk I gave.
0: Oh, good, good. I mean, <laughs> I hated it immediately. Um, on on reflection, it's not it's not that bad. I mean, it could have gotten the way of astronomy. I'm not aware of any instances in which it did. Yeah. Um, it could have, you know, become space debris. It didn't. Um, Well,
1: it was specifically designed not to. Yeah. Uh, So it was designed to burn up within, I think it was nine months. And in the end, it did within like two months. Mm. Um, And and weirdly enough, I spoke to someone who works at the New Zealand Space Mm. Agency at this conference. And Mm. she was saying that um, actually the humanity star was never really meant to be this artistic humanity thing. Mm. They just wanted to prove that they had launch capabilities and they had to launch something. Mm. And they thought, oh, okay, well, we want it to burn up quickly and we want it to be these dimensions and we want it to roughly look like this. And what resulted was the humanity star. And then they were like, oh, well, we'll create a role for it. Um, So,
0: yeah. Uh, I mean, what I didn't like about it was that it was um, unilateral, that people by and large were unaware of this launch plan Mm. and that while it didn't interrupt any astronomy the idea of sending a bright twinkling thing into space is intrinsically risky to astronomy at least a low level Um, people presented this as if there was nothing else to be inspired by looking into space you know look, look at the ISS even iridium satellites are pretty cool, but the ISS, there's people living on that, and it's, it's really bright. Mm. You can see satellites all the time if you're in a dark place and you know how to look. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't impressed by that. But I just guess the, um, the unilateral. We didn't clear it with anyone. Didn't really think about what this could have been. You know, I mean, Sputnik is just a little thing that blinks in the radio. You know, it's, it's not that different, but. The whole idea was that you advertise this as a a proof that you can do it um, and put some scientific equipment on it. Like, anyone would have loved to have had a CubeSat you Mm. know, put into orbit, but no. I mean look, I don't mind the humanity star. I just think it's a waste. I just think it's a waste of a perfectly good launch and it was done by people who I'm sure had very good intentions but didn't really talk to the rest of the community who'd got concerns, and also had better ideas.
1: Ben, could I challenge you for a minute? Yeah. And suggest that maybe the reason that we don't like the Humanity Star, and I say we because I personally mm. saw it go up and thought, oh, mm. God, what have we done? Um, that we don't like the Humanity Star because it is, in its, in its appearance, a purely aesthetic, mm. artistic, humanities-based Ooh. thing Ooh. in the domain which has previously been reserved for science. You know, previously science was the gatekeeper. Like, science yeah. um, through national agencies were the gatekeepers to space access because it was incredibly expensive and difficult. And mm. then now, space is suddenly open. It's mm. open because you've got, co- you've got companies like SpaceX where if mm. you've got a spare... Um, 30 to 60 million dollars you can send whatever you want into space mm. um, and <laughs> funny story um, I, I used to work in an investment bank and one of my managers there um, was my ex-managers I should say was quite amused by the Humanity mm. Star launch and by Tesla, uh, the Elon mm. Musk Tesla was launch. about
0: to, yeah.
1: Yeah, which is the same deal, right? I hated that. I, well, we'll get to it. But yeah. he was saying, well, hang on, this car's in space. Mm. What if I got together with some mates and we sent a bunch of golf balls up into space and launched them in the direction of this car um, <laughs> and, and did some mm. damage? How much would it cost me and so i did the maths for him and he figured out that he and his mates could afford it um and and oh there was a God. serious discussion not really it wasn't super serious but it like it you know if if wealthy individuals mm. um with some backing can afford to do something like that as mm. a lark or if or if a billionaire can afford to put his car into space the the gates are, are broken mm. right mm. and so I feel that perhaps there is a sense that the scientific community is feeling threatened and is feeling like their um, their gatekeeper role in regards to hmm. space is threatened, and, and so the Humanity Star is hated because it's it's an arts thing in a science world.
0: I think there's. I think you're right. Really, I think I was
1: prepared to be. That shut doesn't down. make me
0: recant my dislike of sure. the Humanity Star or the. Um, or the uh, the Tesla in space, which I, I loathed, um, and I think I think you're right that to a large extent the frustration comes with someone from outside the community that's used to dealing with space, um, coming as an interloper after you know, norms have been established of what kinds of things go in space after what kind of really very stringent you know um, public discussion public not in the public eye really but in terms of um, in the scientific community open discussion and peer review and all sorts of things about allocating funding which is very scarce um, you know i think that to a large extent what really frustrates me is the ways in which the scientific community's norms have been violated now whether this is because it's an arts thing i'm not sure I fully agree that it's because it comes from outside the mainstream of the scientific community. But I think the reason that the Tesla is dicky is not because it's an arts thing.
1: But it is a commerce thing.
0: It is a commerce thing. And I think that the Tesla is dicky because it is gauche. The Tesla is dicky because um, it reads like an advertisement. Sure. Um, Because, to a large extent, tesla is as large as a good space telescope and they could quite easily have launched a good space telescope but suppose they didn't want to suppose they wanted to launch a beautiful artwork into space um maybe that would have been good but they didn't they launched one man's vanity into space Mm -hmm. and i think to a large extent with the humanity star it's not like the Tesla, but it's got, it's got a family resemblance in the sense that it had the ring of a vanity project yep. that wasn't public. Even though they said it was for the public, there was no public consultation, and it quite easily could have caused um, difficulty to precisely the people who are most used to that environment. Um,
1: Ooh, to push back, Ben, yeah. there's no public consultation when people put CubeSats or... Well, for some of them, there are are voting things, but for most of, most of scientific projects, there's no public consultation. There's consultation of a community of scientists, perhaps.
0: I think there's a delegated authority that, you know, if the Australian Research Council wants to pay for a CubeSat that's been developed through a competitive process, that that, to a large extent, is that this is a public good that has been agreed upon through, like, normal channels. I think the, the issue is whether there's channels
1: well, if the New Zealand Space Agency approves the launch of the humanity star.
0: Oh, the bloody Kiwis. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, joke, they you know, went look, through know. a
1: stringent process.
0: I know, look, but this this is why I wasn't rigorously like... I'm, I'm playing I devil's advocate this, here. But I think it just, it's aesthetically bad.
1: Aesthetically bad because it I, I think, because it contradicts norms. Is that what we're saying? I, I
0: think to a some extent it's because it contradicts norms. But to some extent it, because it contradicts like not i mean like by that i mean in a narrow sense like political economic norms of like space is reserved for approved space agencies conducting scientific missions but i think you know if you were going to put if you're going to put michelangelo's david in space or something you know that'd be cool Mm. i mean don't it I'm, i'm happy with it being in Florence
1: you can just imagine but, it getting blasted by a cloud of space yeah. debris and like day two
0: but but it, if the idea is to put a beautiful thing in space um, which which sort of has I'm not I, I you know I'm not the I'm not the aesthetics police but like which has some kind of dignity to it <laughs> that's much better than putting some car in space even if it weren't an advertisement even if he put a Mercedes in space just to prove how selfless he was, that he wasn't even attached to his own brand. I'd still hate it. I'd still hate it because... Well,
1: but you know, it's commercializing Mm. what has been a scientific domain. And
0: Mm.
1: I want to talk a little bit more explicitly about norms Mm. because... So I love norms mm. as a concept but sometimes if you don't specify it can become a lot like the word problematic yeah, yeah, yeah. which i hate i hate when people mm. say something's problematic because what they mean is there's something wrong here but i'm not gonna be i'm too lazy to actually unpack mm. what's wrong so in terms of norms are you talking about merton's norms um of scientific behavior
0: i'm so ignorant i don't even know that okay. term
1: okay okay so um so History and philosophy of science being mm. my background. Mm. Merton was, um, I suppose we should say, a sociologist of science or or mm, probably a historian of scientists, ac- actually, um, who in the 40s published a work basically saying that, okay, science is defined by norms mm. and they fall into um, the the acronym KUDOS. So um, communism or... Mm. communalism as they renamed it yes. uh after after all of that happened uh, so communism universalism mm. disinterestedness and organized skepticism mm. so the idea is science sounds good to me uh, science is like yeah. you, know, you share things um you uh, like anyone can do science mm. uh you don't have particular financial or social interests in what you're reporting is true mm. um And organized skepticism is around, like, we all sit around a table and we look at your work on its merits and Mm. we say, "Mm, let's try and disprove it rather than let's try and support it. Merton's norms are really what define the cartoon scientist. Mm. And a lot of work in sociology of science post-1940 have been to say, well, well no so mm. mitroff um was a student of merton and came up with counter norms so basically the idea was well for every norm there's a counter norm so you can say there's um there's disinterestedness but there's also interestedness as in when you actually do science mm. scientists are interested in the sense that uh, this they're is not in terms of like they're interested in the, results yeah. The studying yeah they're rewarded like they get paid mm. they get tenure. blah 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 um sort of what we've mm-hmm. discussed before And then more recently, people have said, well, no, science is sort of a socially constructed Mm, thing, mm. and there's nothing inherent about science Mm. that makes it different, Mm. and, you know, all of those things. So, um, for the record, I do not subscribe to the Mertonian view of science, just Mm. in case any HPS nerds are listening. But I think what you're talking about is you're basically saying there's this Mertonian Mm. ideal of science, which is communism, universalism, disinterestedness and Mm. organised scepticism that makes science special Mm. and commercialism or what what we might sort of say vanity or an advertisement or Mm. any of those things um, or art fall outside of that but art we can put a little bit closer to it Mm. because we could say well you know there's something universal about art Mm. so maybe it kind of fits in a little bit better Uh, but commercialism Mm. Is definitely on the outer. Does that does that sort of describe what you were thinking about when you yeah, were no, talking about? Yeah, I, I, no, I
0: think so. You've expressed it much better than I ever could. Well, um, I did study it. Yeah, no, I th- whereas it you had to make do with a, a scrappy
1: um, astrophysics de- degree and a PhD from Oxford. So I uh, no, you know, I've fair enough, barely
0: there. educated. Um, <laughs> but I think um, I mean, I'm, look, I'm well aware that society is uh, sorry, science has always existed in society and. I'm very fascinated by, um, you know, these figures such as uh, Robert Oppenheimer or Werner von Braun, or indeed Henrietta Lacks, who exposed the ways in which society um, and its politics um, not necessarily usually infect science, because they've been there since day zero, mm. uh, but in which they encroach upon the... Um, the ways in which scientists see themselves, in John Fowle's words, as a self-questioning self self um, self-questioning ethical elite.
1: Self-questioning ethical elite.
0: Absolutely, you know, the idea is that science, um, you know, as, as in the Newtonian laws, but that science should instantiate some kind of utopian society within a society.
1: Right, okay.
0: Um, and I'm well aware that there's no ethical astronomy under capitalism, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there's no ethical consumption. There's no ethical industry. There's no ethical astronomy. We've always got the spectre of dual-use technology. Um, we've always got the fact that because we live in the capitalism, even if even if there were no, you know, dual-use technology being funded, just to get things into space would require, you know, the expertise of people whose aerospace technologies are dual-use.
1: You know, well, dual-use um, is a nonsense as well. Yeah. I mean. Anything is dual-use. Um, as I often use as an example in talks, my mm. shoe is dual-use. Mm. Um, it, it can be beautiful and be on my foot, or I can hurl it at you, mm. and then it's actually a kinetic, uh, a kinetic missile weapon. Yeah, you know, and like suddenly that's that's very scary. So,
0: but I'm often yeah. I often think about a similarly important character who uh, you've probably heard of, uh, Norbert Wiener, um, uh, really the. Uh, pioneer of cybernetics uh, during and uh, in the decades after World War II. Um, Norbert Wiener, um, sort of in many ways, an intellectual ancestor of some of the things I used in my PhD. Um, Not merely cybernetics as a whole, but specifically um, an algorithm that's the subject of the most interesting story about Norbert Wiener. So um, he invented uh, a kind of automatic aiming mechanism for anti-aircraft weapons. Mm. Where suppose you've got radar looking at an aircraft. Well, the aircraft's moving, so if you're shooting at where it is, it's going to be gone by the time the you know the bullets get there. Yep. Um, so you need to predict its position. So you need to have some kind of analog computer that will project its current trajectory forward and aim it there. But you're a human, so you're you know you have to have something in your gun sight. So there's a compensator mechanism that adjusts where the the weapon is pointing relative to your gun sight so you can be aiming at a at a plane over there but the gun sights going to be there yep um that I, I recognize that the amount of pointing that I just did was <laughs> awful for a podcast and I apologize to any Look, of our listeners our listeners All, surely
1: have imagination any of them.
0: um but uh the algorithm that he developed for this computer Um became the Wiener filter, which is the first example. Well, OK, that's a lie. But it's the first good example of uh, a Gaussian process, um, which is a wide family of algorithms currently popular in machine learning and ones which I relied upon in parts of my PhD. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is of really great significance. You know, he, he really, like, invented a sledgehammer to crack a nut. He, he he pioneered powerful and deep mathematics in order to do um quite a it's not a simple problem but he realized that it's a very hard problem that you had to solve with a very hard method even though it sounds like oh you just you just project it forward a bit right well, when you add noise you have to have ways of statistically getting that up mm-hmm. anyway so the wiener filter very important and he developed this in an explicitly military context after the war um he um had written this paper on the vener filter, and uh, a military engineer some some years later asked him for a copy of the of the uh, the paper and He had a huge dummy spit, and he wrote to a journal and he said, "I will no longer you know it's actually quite a long um, quite a long sort of essay level thing that he wrote uh, as a letter to this journal, which they published in thought it's called "I want to say a scientist rebels is what it was actually published independently as. Um, he wrote to the journal, spitting the dummy massively in a long and angry letter. But the, the, the gist of it was that he would no longer provide copies of this paper to military scientists. He would provide copies to anybody else, but not the military. Mm. And he said, I developed this in a military context in a time where I believed it was necessary because of the evils of Nazism. Um, I now think that in the present context... The escalation of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union is um, evil, and that people who make weapons for either military are threatening world peace. And therefore, I don't want my work to be any part of it. Hmm. You know, go and invent it yourselves, but I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Um, I will refuse to even issue copies of my publications to people with a military or military-adjacent affiliation. which I think is very interesting. I think this is actually really good from a certain perspective when you look historically at how, um, how commodification and weaponization as two sides of the same coin, of seeing things in um, very reductively um, practical terms uh, for the needs of the powerful is something that you never get to go back on. How, you know, um, you know Lewis Mumford was, was talking all about how the Industrial Revolution was not really a revolution just of steam engines, but of clocks. Mm. Of people having the idea to commodify time itself was fundamentally the intellectual project of the Industrial Revolution. You know, and we, d- we didn't get that back. People, people today talk about how they'd like to have a nine to five job as this, as if this is the norm, if that is how people work. And that's, that's what's good. And millennials are really having this trouble because there's no nine to five jobs that will pay to live. Yeah. But as David Graeber talks about, nine to five jobs are a massive historical aberration. People did work. They did work that would add up to the results that they needed historically. Mm. And in very few societies, not none, but few, until the Industrial Revolution, would anyone sell their time per se as the norm? We don't get this back. And so I think a lot of the idea is you've got these ideas of how space or time or fundamental aspects of our world are organized with or without commodification and with or without instrumentalization for the needs of the powerful. And once they're instrumentalized for the needs of the powerful, you never get them back. And that's why I have a really zealous attitude towards space.
1: I want to return to this idea of ethics and where ethics fit within science. Mm. Um, To have a discussion about, you you spoke about the fetishization of technology. Mm. Um, So I'd like to, if I may, bring this conversation around a little bit to talk about Australia's newfound obsession mm. uh, with innovation oh, for God. and with STEM. Mm. Um, so this idea that what we need to be doing is science, technology, engineering and maths. Yeah. Uh, and that, that is what we all need to be focusing on learning because that is how we will uh, all get great jobs and earn enough money to buy mm. avocados and houses. Mm. Um, and uh, and that as a nation we need to be innovating mm. by using disruptive technologies and so on mm. and so forth. Um, of course, mm. this like the the E in STEM doesn't stand for ethics. No, right?
0: no. Maybe it should. Maybe that should be maybe your rebrand. It
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sociology of technology and I've thought techno- ethics and morals yeah. and oh good please
0: do that um,
1: uh, yeah it doesn't quite work but but we'll work on it we'll workshop this but please tell me well I know a little bit about what you think about STEM I, but hate STEM. I would like to talk about it. go on
0: no please go on no 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 no, no, no. no I hate STEM uh, STEM is I, I you know look at society right how many people work in manufacturing in Australia Depends on what you count as a manufacturing industry. Sure. But maybe 10 or 20% Mm
1: -hmm.
0: at most. And that's been quite generous at the 20% end. Yeah. Um, I'd say that's pretty
1: generous. I'm really
0: really including all of the aspects of, you know, um, software development and and high technology industries. Um, Most of the economy is a service sector. Um, And, you know, historically that's been maybe... 20% 20% of the economy if you exclude administrative services and really you know restrict it to hairdressing and waiting and so forth it still is about 20% of the economy mm-hmm. a lot of people work in um, public or private administration It's really the largest single sector of employment um, nearly all of them don't need for their work to know about the structure of the atom they mm-hmm. just don't I mean if, if, if okay you might need to know a bit of maths but frankly the level of maths that you need to do your average administrative job is not you know full unit HSC let alone university now I'm not saying they shouldn't learn science but the idea that your scientific education is predicated on the employment needs of a society which structurally doesn't actually need that many scientists and engineers in the way that it's currently organised. And I disagree with that, too. I mean, I, sure. I'm quite openly, well, you know, depends depends what you want to call me, but, you know, a social democrat or, or a socialist if I'm, I've had two <laughs> beers. Um, I'm, I'm of the view that, you know, organising society for the, the private profit of a small number of people is um, a pretty dumb way to do things. Uh, And maybe in a better society, we would actually um, arrange for a lot more people who are interested in doing so to be um, working in science, technology, engineering, or maths, which are really good and useful things for society. You know, building bridges and, you know, programming computers, designing robots. These are all awesome things. Mm. It's also awesome to expand human knowledge. I like looking at stars. Some people say, when will you get a real job? And I'm like, it is a real job. The public pays me to do a a specified service, which is learning about stars and communicating these results to other people. Um, Whether they think it's a real job, what they think a real job has to involve is some kind of misery. It has to involve some kind of drudgery for someone else's private benefit. They don't want to be able to just be giving money to people like me who will apparently fart ass around doing a job that looks interesting. And when they produce results, this will be everybody's No one will profit directly, and people will go, "Oh, that was interesting." And every so often, people will go, "Oh, that was interesting. I think we can make a better product because of it." Mm. But the the fantasy of STEM is really, in some senses, the exclusion of the humanities ideologically. Right. The idea that you can say we need to have an education policy that prioritizes STEM for employment. Well, it's not for employment. It's clearly not for employment. Otherwise, we'd be paying scientists more, and we'd have more of them. Well, we're not doing that, and I'd like that we did that, and maybe, maybe we should have a STEM policy for employment in which we then go all the way through the stack and actually employ more postdocs for all the PhD students who graduate and then employ more faculty and have, you know, government research institutions to produce new research that'll be products that'll benefit society. But we don't do that. We don't need everyone to be a scientist. I think they should be scientists because it's interesting and beautiful. But the whole point of STEM education is to say no, you've got to learn how to do practical things with your science. As if we're all going to become nuclear engineers or something. We're not.
1: Well, it's actually even more than that. It's saying like there have been a lot of ads on buses recently being like you know with, with sort of jazzy young women mm. um, saying i chose to study mathematics so i could become a robotic engineer and make yeah. robots for hospitals like that's the kind mm. of progression so it's not even mm. about becoming a scientist yeah it's about becoming someone who invents yeah technologies or uses technologies um, in existing ways mm. so Uh, There's got to be a really clear link to Mm. some existing job, which actually precludes a lot of science, technology, engineering, and maths, which is theoretical. Like, Mm. yeah, you could be a a theoretical physicist, and Mm. that will pay off, but it it may pay off for society
0: in 50 years' time. But I think a lot of this talk about, you know, how it would be inspiring to be... um, you know working in robotics or you know uh, this idea of innovation all of this language to do with tech startups and tech startups are sexy and you walk down campus and there's always someone having coffee pitching their latest startup idea to use you know um, Bitcoin for milk I don't know you know just <laughs> yeah you know whatever they're doing um, and you know good luck to them but um, the idea that this needs to be a nation of innovators where everyone has to innovate their jobs um, I mean, look, sure, I mean, there's this Osborne and Frey paper a couple of years ago about um, how AI is going to kill all employment. And I do think we actually should really worry about um, large scale employment issues. But, you know, so um, I I acknowledge Mm. all of the main points that are being made and I'm not going to try and take down all of society or whatever. But I think there's this idea that we have to aspire to be the kinds of people who are rich. You know, there's this, you know, Elon Musk and and Mark Zuckerberg and even Warren Buffett are all seen as inspiring people. Bill Gates, you know, they're inspiring. You should want to be the sort of person who has a tech startup because look at what you can be if you have a tech startup. You can be powerful. Mm. This is just propaganda to say that the powerful deserve it because you're not going to start a tech startup. And if you do, you're going to fail because they all fail. Yeah. A tiny proportion of them succeed. Um. What you're really saying to people is that we value as a society the people who are the richest.
1: Well, it's a very dangerous notion, isn't it? Because you mm. say, and this is something that bothers me uh, mm. more more when I was working in the US. Mm. But th- there's a sense that if you work hard mm. and you sacrifice, then you can be successful mm. and you can succeed. And, and success in this sense is monetary. Mm-hmm. Um or power or whatever the case is
2: Mm.
1: and so the counterpoint to that is if you are not successful by which we mean wealthy Mm. then you have not worked hard you must not have worked hard enough Mm. and I think that's very dangerous because loads of people work hard in the Mm. conventional sense at their jobs Mm. and don't make lots of money because their jobs don't pay very much and loads of people work hard in other senses um, through you know maybe they work in science and they think about sciencey mm. stuff and they don't make lots of money and mm. it's a, it's a sense of that yeah. and so what you're then saying is if you say ah oh, well there's a great opportunity in the tech industry everyone can do stem and everyone mm. can sit in their basement and code something mag- magical and make millions and millions of mm. dollars what you're saying is basically we don't have to as a society as a government invest mm. in young people yeah and their education and their careers because all of them have exactly the same opportunity Mm. to um to be entrepreneurs and make billions of dollars and if Mm. they haven't done that then there's something that they haven't done it's not our responsibility and i I find that dangerous i think um
0: i think you're absolutely right i think actually the um i forget the phrasing that you used but you sort of implied it was about the elite mentality Mm. of you know what things you're providing. And I think that's absolutely true, is that to the elite who might be in government or in the echelons of business or education that make decisions, um, to the elite, this is their lived experience mm. because opportunity is provided to them to succeed. And, you know, there's cushions for their risks. And so, you know, this the, the sort of neoliberal ideology is like, a sort of Thatcherite idea, of um, Reaganite idea of uh, wealth creation mm. as being something that entrepreneurs do. This is just self-congratulation. I mean, all entrepreneurs, apart from, you know, a very, very select few, I'll maybe admit, who, you know, invent very useful algorithms that are just widely applicable or whatever like that, you know. But let's basically, what they do is they find a market and then they get a product and they exploit the labor of lots of people to make lots of that product and they leverage existing capital from finance to do so
2: Mm.
0: they're not wealth creators they're at the best wealth facilitators but the idea is that all of society should be doing this but they never like to think about the people who you know built the product All, all the people you know laboring away in some foxconn hellhole where they've got suicide nets or whatever i mean wasn't Steve Jobs who made the iPhones yep it was poor people slaving away in Foxconn hellholes that did so um, but they want to imagine a society without that they want to imagine a society cleansed except of the elite where if you have enough stem then everyone's an entrepreneur and you, you just don't think about the actual mechanics of labor it, it's it's a it's an abstract it's a mentality of people, and look, I'm, I'm one of them, whose educational experience has so divorced them from uh, the experiences of um, deprivation, risk, and uh, not even just poverty, but of, of um, a lack of mobility, that they can't imagine what, they, they just don't even see that as part of the world. Mm. What the world is, is entrepreneurs, who, you know, small business owners at worst and and titans of industry at best who make things themselves and they don't, they they see the people, the employees as instruments of a will that's from the real people. And they're making policy for the real people, not the little people.
1: I think though, the only thing I'd say to that is so so I was very fortunate and went to um, a very well off school um, and Uh, you know, and I can justify it Mm. all and say I went on a scholarship and blah 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 But I did go to that school Mm. and a lot of people I went to school with are now entrepreneurs So Mm. they have started small businesses and Mm. become very successful And one way of looking at it is to say ah, there must have been something in the education that led to that Another way to look at that is to say well Those people are people who have financial backing Mm. and so they can afford to take risks Mm. Um, and they've got the contacts and, and all of that and all of that is true, but all I would say is I think it doesn't it doesn't negate the achievements of people who have, um, like, the, the fact that someone has a bit of a leg up in comparison to someone else does not mean that their at- achievement is any no. less wonderful. But on the other hand, I think what we're saying is we need to be aware of the fact that there are inequalities that exist hmm. and... Um, that STEM is not a magic wand Mm. you can't wave STEM over every school in New South Wales and suddenly every student has the same um, opportunities as every other student it's Mm, just not true so so yeah so I think that's one aspect of STEM which we need to be careful of Um, the other aspect of STEM which I really have issues with is of course that personally i um come from a humanities background Mm. primarily i have done maths you know i speak science sometimes um but i come from a humanities background but now i work in the space well i I research and work in the space industry Mm. and so a lot of what i'm coming up against or working with is is science driven and it's very hard to say like if, if you looked at what i do you'd say okay I, i'm not doing stem mm. um even though we might say that history and philosophy of science is you know at city units in the science faculty mm. i am not on my in the day-to-day what mm. they think of when they think of stem but on the other hand i think that people who do you know people far cleverer than me like um stephen freeland who professor stephen freeland i should say who's um the just just stepped down as dean of uws law but who is one of the world's leading space lawyers Mm. um or donna Lawler for that matter or you know other people who work in space law or people who work in space finance Mm -hmm. or um space design all areas of what we would call the industry Mm. um in scare quotes uh they are all necessary absolutely and so I, I really struggle I was at so I was at this conference um, for the, the space strategy in Canberra mm. in July and they they had the deputy head of the Japanese Space Agency attend mm. oh cool yeah and he gave a fabulous speech um, in English which was in, which mm. was very impressive and then in question time he had a translator helping mm. um, and someone asked a question about STEM and what Japan had done with STEM in their education system. Mm. And there was a huge confusion because, of course, the translator yeah. was st- sitting there saying, what is STEM? What's, what's STEM? Yeah, And so they had to translate it for her into science, technology, engineering and maths. And even then it made no sense. Mm. And the the um, this deputy head of the space agency from Japan was sort of shaking his head and saying like, well, wh- like, why these things? Why are we only talking about these things? And in the end, in his response, he, mm. he made it clear that he thought that um, in Japan, they focused on creativity mm. and that science, technology, engineering and maths were part of it, but only part of it. Mm. And he was very confused at why we were talking about just those things. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was a, a good That's lesson. so interesting. Yeah. And a good lesson for Australia, because we think, mm. of course, if we go with STEM, that we'll be... Mm. Um, on the world stage and we'll be world leaders in Mm. STEM. In fact, STEM is a a socially constructed concept. Absolutely. Which is a nonsense, Mm. really. Um, It means only what we want it to mean. And what we want it to mean makes no sense in the context of countries with established and successful space agencies. Mm. And if that doesn't warn us, then I don't know what will. Mm. That, you know, actually arts humanities ethics philosophy
2: mm.
1: are imperative to what what ought to be a what ought to be the education that everybody receives mm. in in our society um and and inf- unfortunately is not currently but We should be striving you know we shouldn't just be saying oh we need to do stem no 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 what we what we're actually talking about is improving the education system as a whole Mm. and a large part of that of course will be stem
0: yeah but but there's this you you know you're you're just totally right we're in Um, furious agreement um, a furious we should
1: have brought in someone to give a counterpoint this is uh but
0: in australia (laughs) i think the difference is well i don't know maybe in japan they've got it too probably i don't know enough about japan We've got this culture war in Australia. People are obsessed with the idea of lefties in education, in indoctrinating children. They are in the States, they are in the UK, about snowflake students, you know, and free speech on campus. And it's all this big attack. And you know, it's the other prong of the attack on um, a public understanding of their own society. And science is in, in that society. I think um, if you're in a society which doesn't value critical perspectives on STEM, then that's one of the ways in which they devalue, you know, all of the other things too, because then you allow this supremacy of, of the purely instrumental. And it's not even as if the arts aren't instrumental. You know, people get a lot of pleasure from it and anything like that should be instrumental, but they're not very useful to people who are powerful and make decisions. They're threatening because the arts often teach you that people who are powerful are no different from ourselves. Or if they are, then maybe worse. <laughs> well,
1: and arts is often the means through which we express dissent. And we resist through and the And we arts. resist. You only have to look at, um, like, yeah, you can look at anyone, like Haydn. Mm. You know, mm. Haydn expressed great dissent through his music. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: I wonder, to some extent, whether this goes back to issues like Norbert Wiener. He wasn't a communist. He was probably, I've read his books, he's he explicitly not a communist, um, but he identifies as a democrat and, and uses the words in a way that sort of means social democrat quite clearly. Mm. You know, he argues very forcefully for the welfare state and so forth. So he was firmly on the left in American politics as it stood in the 1950s. You know, well to the left and faced issues for that. Um, Oppenheimer on the other hand, he was a commie. They were all communists, you know. All of the generation of the first 20th century of um, scientists. Look, the the spectrum of scientific beliefs ran from, okay, there were a few Nazis, but by and large from soft social democrats through to card-carrying Marxists. Mm. You know, all of these people had really firm ideas about society and were grounded in humanities educations. You know, Oppenheimer spoke five languages, two of them classical. You know and would ride around you know Los Alamos on horseback reciting Baudelaire okay he was probably an extreme example right but but a lot they all you know knew the classics they all knew but both in their vernacular and often in Latin um, they often had uh, membership of political parties uh, their friends were literary figures yep you know this was a milieu in which scientists were part of the educated elite but not separate from some other part of it where they all had arts and humanities friends and interests and a lot of arts and humanities people were interested in science as well you know
1: oh, and there's a great crossover there there's yeah. a great tradition of crossover between yeah. music and science and hmm. mathematics oh uh, yeah Tom Lehrer being of course, oh, of course the, yeah. the best example um yeah gotta love that gotta but, love that guy actually yeah yeah Tom Lehrer is, is one oh, of exactly. my all-time heroes um but I, I, yeah. I guess
0: well, all I'm saying is that there's this this history that this is like, this is really ahistorical even to see it as like, oh, science has always been against the humanities and like trying to crowd it out for educational space, is that f- for most of its history in early modern through to pre-World War II science, scientists, okay, they may not have been representative of the general population in many ways, and a lot of them weren't very good people, mm but one thing that they weren't is uncultured mm. and one thing that everyone would have found inconceivable is the idea that science should be valued more than um you know roundedness of personality and understanding of society and understanding of uh aesthetics and arts and literature and ethics and compassion and all of these sorts of things that i think we, we rightly value in a person um there's been some great intellectual project to devalue in that subset of people who are scientists and that seems weird to me and I look at I'm not a historian of science and you'll probably tell me I'm wrong and I'm reading something into this but this seems to me to be a fundamentally reactionary thing in relation to the Cold War that they freaked out when you know you had nuclear spires and when you had um, people wanting to be um, independent thinkers were also part of an industrial military complex that the whole superstructure of society relied on for its continued existence. They had to be disciplined. And the arts teaches you the opposite of being disciplined. Mm. It teaches you to be open. I I, th- I think fundamentally that's that's the basis of the STEM dichotomy that shouldn't be there, is the idea that you, you should be closed and you should do what you're told and you know, um, you should value things that are um, tangible, but not value things that are intangible. I, that's my, oh, look, you know, you've heard my lefty rants before, but.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Usually with significantly more alcohol on board than well, we currently have, I would say. Um, although we have had some good Vickys, so hmm, that, that probably. Those are good biscuits. I don't know, what do you some... think?
0: His, is that a, a valid historical perspective or me just ranting?
1: Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to make that a dichotomy.
0: (laughs) Um, Too many dichotomies here.
1: I think you can, you can be correct and you can rant. Um, I think, look, I probably don't know enough about Cold War scientific history to be able to comment on that from a history. I can guarantee
0: you I don't. From a history
1: (laughs) of science perspective. From, from what I have studied, Mm. I think that that makes perfect sense. Um, And I think it's completely valid uh, whether it's correct, I'm sure people can argue, but um you know w- without speaking for all historians of science, I would say that makes perfect sense. I would say though that um, going back to what we were discussing at the very beginning of this segment on mm. on the humanity star and mm. the symbolism of that mm. and the issue of having something purely, you know, like like just with no, no scientific value, something that mm. provoked debate
2: mm.
1: whizzing around the earth um, in what had been a scientific domain. I just, I, I like that in that context mm. um, and I think and I think personally that it's very important that when we do science hmm. um, th- that people like you who are scientists uh, and mathematicians and so on are willing to accept like are willing to um, to put forward a view of science as something that hmm. is not distinct from everything else and I think often what we get is this thing of I mean it, it goes back to agnatology, which hmm. is sort of the study of the social construction of doubt um which is which which you could trace back to um anti-smoking and and Mm. the kind of intentional creation of doubt in science with the use Mm. of think tanks um as it pertains to smoking Mm. and the instance of cancer and basically there's this doubt in science and the reaction from scientists um, and people in the scientific community when people say oh but you know maybe global warming isn't true Mm, mm.
2: um
1: is often to kind of close in Mm. To close ranks and to close up and Mm. say, well, it is true because we've done all this science and this is how science works. Mm. And if you don't get it, then you don't like, you know, that's not valid. Actually, we are correct. And this is the body of knowledge we have. Mm. And we've done it in this way. And look at all the norms we're upholding, like those modernian norms norms we were discussing. That may be correct and justified Mm. and I'm not for a second denying climate science um, Mm. before anyone gets really excited. (laughs) Not for a second. But I think there may be something in that, that perhaps science needs to, uh, perhaps in response to this STEM push, Mm. in fact, open up. um, Mm. And and not just... You know, people talk about STEAM, sticking arts in the middle Mm. of STEM. And I think that's even more of a nonsense because... Mm. Really, what we want to talk about is being open-minded, being mm. um, educated, not not expressing that tall poppy syndrome, which mm. happens in Australia, engaging in intellectual debate. Now, but, th- but that at the same time, what I struggle with is that that doesn't mean that you can just um, just sort of question facts and make an individual mm. responsible for answering them. Mm as we often see happening on Twitter, like almost constantly. It's mm. like, oh, but can you prove it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things like that, right? It's not, it's, that's not helpful. But mm. ideally, if, it, if everyone has a kind of a, a broad education, mm. which covers off a lot of stuff, and we're all coming from the same mm. um, direction, I don't think that scient- scientists and science should be afraid of, um, of stepping outside the STEM zone mm. and, and engaging on other levels be it philosophy, history, um, (laughs) even, dare I say, commerce. Oh. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I think that is really important um, and something that uh, in Australia, perhaps through our space agency, we need to be doing.
2: Mm.
1: Um, Whether or not that will happen is a different matter. But while we're sitting here with with our glasses of water, I, I wish we had glasses of wine or something. Yeah. Con- you know, conjecturing wildly, that's probably what I'd like to see.
0: So do you want to see the space agency fund art?
1: Well, yeah. You know why? I think so. You know why? Um, the Antarctic program funds art. Does it? Yeah. So I, uh, they have a teacher program. Mm. So every year they will take a teacher to Antarctica. So just an ordinary run-of-the-mill teacher from Australia mm. can apply. And go to Antarctica and come back and, and share that knowledge. Mm. Um, but they also have... Actually, the New Zealand program is way better at this. Mm. They have a writer's position mm. and they also have an artist position mm. every year. And they will you can apply and they will take you down to Antarctica with them and you can sit at a desk or mm. hang out in Antarctica and do art. Mm. and or or write um mm. write novels write short stories write poetry whatever it is that it, you have yeah. to, you know, go through a process and you apply and so on and it sounds very token but in fact the new zealand antarctic program is quite small mm. and the amount of money required to get someone from mm. new zealand to antarctica and keep them alive yeah, for a period of time, it's significant. Oh, so it's actually huge. Um, mm. Yeah, so I, I actually, I absolutely think we should do it, be doing that with the Australian Space Agency. Mm. And you know, if I might reverse my position on the Humanity Star, mm. um, I would say from that perspective, while perhaps there should have been some more consultation with mm. scientific communities and bodies. Mm. In essence, art is supposed to challenge and supposed oh. to shock. And consultation may have resulted in it never being launched. And in fact, no harm was done. No it was not. done responsibly. It fell out of the sky within two months. It provoked a lot of conversation. Um, it was... Who am I to say it was not art? What is art?
0: I Are think gonna if go it was there? publicly funded to be art, I'd like it.
1: Really? Yeah. But because it was privately funded, you don't like it?
0: I think the difference... It was
1: publicly supported.
0: Not sure quite how to respond. I'm watching,
1: I'm watching, just 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 for the benefit of listeners. Ben Ben is is sort of, I'm watching him struggle internally uh, as as things sort of come into conflict.
0: I think you've brought me to a point of, you know... um... Aparia in this particular Elencus Um, (laughs) But Maybe what I mean is If it could have been any art If there were Some way that the enormous Public expense of this Were to be brought to be something That maybe came down to The decision of one artist um, Which was intended to be some Intellectual or aesthetic response to space if this were intended to be a contribution to culture, then yes, it seemed like a marketing exercise, and that's that's the, that's why it's not art.
2: Hmm.
0: It, it, they were talking about this is you know, it was all branded, and they had a website, which was all glitzy, and they did all this press, and it came out of nowhere. And it wasn't very interesting. It wasn't. It wasn't very aesthetic. You know, it was just a, a little thing.
1: In your opinion. In
0: my opinion. In my
1: opinion, it was. It was all right.
0: But it wasn't. It wasn't.
1: You feel it that it couldn't It wasn't arty enough. It wasn't arty enough.
0: It wasn't. Wasn't, enough. Enough. It wasn't, it wasn't cool.
1: Grassroots.
0: Yeah, this should. It it lacked what it lacked some kind of feeling of authenticity that I want real art to have.
1: Ah, oh, but it it's looked, difficult, isn't it? Because if you want it to have authenticity,
0: and I also want it to be produced in an accountable way by a public organisation, I want I want the impossible, Annie.
1: <laughs> and you want it to get into space where it would a $30 dollars?
0: <laughs> maybe maybe I don't have a good answer on the humanity star. Um. Maybe my response is coloured by the community I come from and the way that this seemed to spit in its face. But I think doing something beautiful in space should be be encouraged. Doing something beautiful about space might be even more encouraged (laughs) given that it doesn't cause any chaos for those of us who have to work with it. But um, Hmm. I'm not sure.
1: All right. Well, it remains unsolved, but we might end it there. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank for you, this was very time. interesting. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Good. Um, and I enjoyed my bicycle.
0: It was a good bicycle. I had two.
1: That's shocking. Yeah. That's well, there you go.
0: If anyone uh, in the, the HPS department it, doesn't yeah. know where the bickies went, they went they went to me.
1: You've been listening to Space Junk. If you would like to find out more about space law or the history, philosophy, and sociology of science, you can follow me on Twitter at ahandmer, that's A for Annie, H-A-N-D-M-E-R. You can also follow Dr. Ben Pope on at Fringe Tracker. that's F-R-I-N-G-E-T-R-A-C-K-E-R. Thanks for listening.